everyone. Welcome back to the Step Outside podcast. This is your host, Christy Keel Blackman, with the Department of Forestry, Wildlife, and Fisheries at the University of Tennessee Institute of Agriculture. Today, we are joined by two graduate students, Davis Carter and Adri Tompros. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. We appreciate you coming on, and we're excited to learn about what you're doing. So, Adri and Davis are both in the Gray Lab with Dr. Matt Gray, and we're going to hear from both of them about what they are studying. They have some really important research going on. And to give a little background info before we really dive in deep, Davis, can you tell us what is B-cell and what does B-cell stand for? Yeah, so Betrachochytrum salamandrivorans is a pretty recently described fungal pathogen. It's recently been causing die-offs in Europe and European fire salamander populations, where it's thought to have been introduced from the pet trade from Asia is probably where it originally came from. But B-cell is what we call it. It is uh, closer related to another chytrid fungus, which I think more people are familiar with, which is Betrachochytrum dendrobatides or BD. And that's really caused widespread declines in a lot of anurin species or frog species, especially in Central and South America. So that fungal pathogen, BD, has caused the declines of close to 500 species or extinctions for some of those species as well. And so the description of this new pathogen, B-style, has really worried people, especially since salamanders seem to be more susceptible to it. It's really threatening for North America because North America has really high salamander diversity, whereas a lot of other areas of the world, their amphibian diversity is largely made up of frogs. So we're sort of unique in that we have a lot of salamanders. And with this new pathogen that seems to cause the most severe declines or the most impacts on uh, these salamanders, it's, it's important that we understand it. But it's got a little bit different thermal characteristics than, than BD. It tends to like cooler temperatures than the other pathogen, which is why it might be doing so much in Europe. So that's something that we're looking at too here at UT. Okay. But is that your research specifically? One of my projects is seeing how pathogenicity and susceptibility to B-cell are affected by temperature. So like Adri, we use eastern newts in my projects where we're seeing how these animals can tolerate or resist the pathogen at different temperatures. From our work, it kind of looks like at really cold temperatures, the animals become infected, but they progress through disease slower. So at around six degrees Celsius, they'll all become clinically infected and and die. And then at 15 degrees Celsius, which is right at like the optimum for the pathogen, they develop disease really rapidly and mortality occurs very quickly. But then at 22 degrees Celsius, which isn't an abnormal temperature for our area, Mm-hmm. Um, they don't become infected. So that's kind of the good news. That doesn't mean that during colder times of the year, like right now in the middle of winter, those animals won't be affected. That's one of the things we're looking at definitely is how temperature influences this pathogen. Interesting. Adri, why don't you tell us what you're studying? Yeah. So I am in my second year of my master's here in the Gray Miller Lab with my primary advisor being Dr. Matt Gray. I sort of studied two different things. So I have two chapters of my thesis, the first being looking at and identifying a transmission function. So trying to understand just transmission dynamics of B-cell of where we had 290 Eastern newts with some of them infected, some of them not, and then also at different densities. So just trying to understand transmission dynamics between different infection prevalences and also 
different host densities. And I'm also uh, looking at the efficacy of plant-derived fungicides. So actually looking at five or so different plant-derived fungicides. So basically the fungicidal components derived from plants as a potential treatment option, not only for individuals, but also environmental as well. The main thing with B-cell right now is trying to limit the spread of the pathogen. And in Europe right now, a lot of the work they're doing is finding out where it is because they described it and they isolated it in the Netherlands. But since they described it, they've been finding it everywhere. They're looking like in Germany, it's been found at several areas with pretty high prevalence. It's popped up in areas of Spain that are like 1,500 kilometers away from the nearest site where it's been detected. So it's just spreading around and it seems to be spreading likely due to people releasing pets is the most likely cause. It's been an interesting time, I'm sure, over there to be sampling in areas where you're not sure it's there and then you find it and then you you see this population is declining pretty rapidly. That's probably why. And so we think it originated in somewhere in Asia. Is that correct? And do we have any idea where the pathogen actually originated or what was the cause of it? It seems to have originated in the Cretaceous period, which I think was the time where there was a lot of fungal boom that happened during that time period. So it seems like it's co-evolved with a lot of the Asian newt species, which isn't that surprising if it originated there. The Asian newts over time would develop a resistance to it, which they've found. They, they become infected, but they don't really suffer clinical disease caused by b And the way it probably got to Europe is because a lot of those Asian newts are pretty charismatic newts, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. They're really colorful and heavily traded. Um, Aren't all newts charismatic newts, though? I mean, that's (laughs) how I feel. (laughs) I think they're they're some of the more colorful ones, for sure. Yeah. And and they walk around out and about sometimes Uh more than other salamander species. Okay. So, So I didn't realize it has literally been here for centuries, eons, this pathogen has. Yeah. But it's just now a bit started transmitting across country borders. Right. There's a good quote from a paper uh, in 2019, and he said, we live in a functional Pangaea for pathogens, basically. We have, <laughs> you know, recreated Pangaea and because humans move around things so often, so quickly that it's just made it, you know, we've, we've just seen what happened with coronaviruses in China, and then <laughs> a week later, it's here in the U.S. Right. That's sort of what happens with wildlife pathogens. And one thing that people here in the United States are pushing for is wildlife health certificates. So if you're going to be trading wildlife, we need to see that those animals are actually healthy and disease-free, which right now is not really the case. So Adri, let's jump back into this. We've, we've heard a little bit about the origins of this pathogen and how we think it's traveling. And now hopefully we can prevent it from coming to the U.S., right? If it does arrive here, you're working to mitigate the effects. So let's talk about some of your research and what you found. Yeah, one of the main things that we do is just trying to understand um, the differences in susceptibility of different species to B-cell. So it's kind of interesting that even within North America and a lot of the species that we have tested specifically, we're sort of focusing on in our lab some of the eastern and southeastern species, but we have other collaborators across the country that are looking at more western species as well. But looking at them, basically doing trials of giving them different doses of B-cell and seeing how they respond if they actually do develop symptoms and if they actually do die from the pathogen itself. Just really understanding differences in susceptibility and 
by doing that, we're able to understand and sort of categorize different species into those that are highly susceptible, those which could be considered more carrier species, so can actually become infected and harbor the pathogen, but don't actually succumb to it or have any symptoms. And others that are kind of similar to that and that they're super spreaders, able to ramp up really, really high loads of B-cell, but still walk around and or swim and uh, persist in the environment as if they weren't may show some symptoms, but don't actually succumb to B-cell at all. So they're basically mm-hmm. just creating these really, really high loads and sort of shutting them into the environment. Understanding these differences in susceptibility of these species, especially those who could cohabitate in certain areas or those that have very large populations in certain areas, mm-hmm. just trying to understand how these differences could really impact transmission within the same geographic area or depending on if some species may travel farther to new geographic areas, just trying to understand a lot of those differences in transmission dynamics. And so you guys actually recently found through your research that basically the the higher the population density, the more transmission there will be, right? Yeah, so we published a paper about how host density affects the spread of the pathogen. And uh, that was actually an undergrad's project, which is kind of incredible. He was yeah. a really good undergrad, and that was his honors thesis. So he basically monitored eastern newts to get an idea of their contact rates. And then he performed this transmission study where he was seeing how effectively they can transmit the pathogen at different states in their disease progression. So after they've been exposed, I believe it was 12, 18, and 24 days post-exposure, he did these contacts between infected newts and susceptible newts to see how easily it could be transmitted back and forth. And using both of those studies, he found that transmission is density dependent for his study. And so they basically saw that if you reduce the number of animals, you're probably going to reduce transmission, although that species is highly susceptible and it only takes really one contact to cause transmission. So it's a potential strategy would be reducing the host population. Another thing that they found was that when he was monitoring those animals and just to see how often they came in contact, they found that if you added some habitat complexity, which in his study were just little artificial plants, the animals would come into contact less frequently. If you put one toy in a room filled with babies, all the babies would play with one toy. If you put a ton of toys in a room with a bunch of babies, they'd all be spread out and maybe playing independently. So that's Mm -hmm. how you can imagine these newts in their little containers. Adding habitat complexity in, you're going to be decreasing the amount of contacts that occur between animals. So rather than totally removing hosts, you could maybe just increase habitat complexity which would reduce their contacts and reduce transmission. But all of this like, sounds very similar to our mitigation strategies for coronavirus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> spread out and, you know, stay away from each other. Yeah. 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 It's, that's essentially the idea. So, yeah, if we can try and get newts to spend less time clumping together, that would be, a, you know, a good thing by increasing habitat complexity. That's one way we could do that. And they've seen that with other diseases or other amphibian diseases where some work has been published showing that ponds with a lot of aquatic vegetation have less coronavirus transmission. Whereas if you look at ponds, for example, cattle ponds a lot of times don't have much vegetation. They're just mm-hmm. sort of like mud pits and tadpoles mm-hmm. in those ponds actually kind of use each other as habitat. So they'll clump together. 
So if you can imagine, if you just put some plants or maybe some fallen tree limbs or something in there, you might actually get those animals to spread out a little bit more and come into contact less frequently. Yeah, it's a cool study. But of course, that is something that would be implemented if the pathogen was here and we couldn't really remove it. The first strategy would be to just call everything and isolate that population if we found B-cell in the United States. But if it's something like we can't control, we can't control the spread, but we want to protect populations, that might be something like a management strategy to allow these animals to eventually go through a selection process that might allow them to remain in the landscape without going extinct in an area. So we know that temperature can affect transmission, host density, and habitats, and habitats, and the species of the, of the amphibian, right? Yeah. But, so is there so anything else? We, we do work with some collaborators that we provide them with samples of amphibian microbiomes. And one thing that they found throughout my studies were that animals at warmer exposure temperatures tend to have different microbiomes. So the bacteria community on their skin is slightly different than at colder temperatures. So it could have been that the pathogen itself wasn't growing and functioning as good at those warm temperatures, but it also could be that the host microbiome was sort of protecting them from infections at those warmer temperatures. So one thing you could do is create probiotics. It's essentially like Adri's drinking kombucha. It's, it's the same thing, but for amphibian skin, rather than lining your gut with beneficial bacteria, you'd be lining their skin with beneficial bacteria that might reduce the possibility of B cells successfully infecting them. That's interesting. Yeah. And Adri also does work with plant-derived fungicide because that's another management strategy. It hasn't really been figured out yet, but she's working towards seeing what plants can maybe help us. Yeah, I am now really underway in looking at plant-derived fungicides. So again, basically just the fungicidal components of plants and seeing their efficacy of not only limiting growth of B-cell, but also killing B-cell as well. I'm still kind of in the preliminary stages, but basically the idea behind it is trying to find and identify environmental treatment strategies. So it's it's pretty hard within a, even if it is more of a smaller isolated pond setting of where we can identify there is B-cell here, what do we do basically? And so it's, it's hard. There are different chemical treatments, more chemically based treatments that have been effective, but they're more so effective on kind of a case by case basis of just treating an individual in an isolated scenario. Which but would really be unfeasible if it spreads exactly, significantly. Yeah. So, yeah trying to find ways to treat just a larger area, but also keeping in mind not completely ruining an ecosystem. (laughs) So you have to not only consider there is B-cell in the environment and the different salamanders or different amphibians that may be impacted and becoming infected with the B-cell, but also the treatment options that you choose in order to combat B-cell in the environment may also have secondary impacts, not only on, on other species, like non-target species that you're looking at, but also could shift the healthy fungus in the environment, the ones that are actually beneficial to the ecosystem itself or other species. So trying to find ways to combat the pathogen while also not doing more damage is kind of fine balance. So 
the idea of looking into plant-derived fungicides is that they may be highly effective, but could have less negative impacts compared to more conventional chemical-based treatments or strategies. So there's been a lot of research done in looking at different plant-derived fungicides or plant-derived treatments in treating human fungal infections or also just different human ailments in general. But there has been very little done in looking at either BD or BSAL. There was a Silva et al. paper in 2019 where part of their study did look at plant-derived fungicides. So three of the ones that I'm actually using, they used as well. So it'd be kind of interesting to compare between BD and BSAL, so our different findings. But yeah, I mean, they found that it was pretty impactful in just limiting growth and also killing the BD. So I'm in sort of the beginning of just looking at it more in a laboratory setting. So using a viability assay and just identifying these concentrations. But in the future, the next steps will be looking at it in more of a controlled pond scenario of actually having pond water, inoculating it with BSAL, and then using these concentrations I identify in this step to see if they are able to kill BSAL in more of a natural setting. And then down the road, actually infecting a host species that we use mostly probably adult Eastern newts, just because they're very common highly susceptible. So infecting those individuals, trying to treat them with these concentrations I identify, and also looking at three different non-target species. So potentially some sort of species of crayfish, a minnow, and I believe a snail is what we're thinking. But into the future, but sort of seeing how these fungicidal compounds actually impact them and could have negative impacts on them. So it's definitely pretty novel and using these type of chemicals of fungicides with looking at chytrid in general. So it'll be pretty exciting to see how things turn out. I'm glad that we're trying to get ahead of the curve before it reaches the U.S. so that we can protect some of our really vulnerable species. Because we all know that amphibians have enough trouble without dealing with another pathogen. It's really good to hear that you guys are doing this work. Yeah, and there's also a lot of surveillance in general of trying to keep ahead of things because the the best strategy there is, is firstly trying to not have it come here and trying to keep it out, but also just identifying it if it is here or in a certain area, identifying it as soon as possible. Because if you're able to identify it and shut down that area or those individuals or that facility as quickly as possible is sort mm-hmm. of the best management strategy in itself. Mm-hmm to just contain it. Yeah. (laughs) Davis, what are your next steps? So I talked about one of my studies, which was the temperature study, but I have three other ones. One is looking at, again, how easily transmission occurs between infected and susceptible animals. So that, that project's really aimed at seeing how quickly an infected animal is able to transmit the pathogen. So it's sort of similar to the study that I described that the undergrad performed, Daniel Maligon, but it's a little bit different in that we're going to be doing those contacts between infected and susceptible animals really early on in in their um, disease progression. So starting like three days after their exposure, which is really quick. So that will give us a better idea of how early on in the infection animals can transmit. So that's one thing I'll be working on. Another project that I'm working on is a carcass transmission experiment. So seeing as animals die from infection, how long are they able to continue to transmit Mm -hmm. to susceptible animals? 
which is pretty important because with Daniel's work, he found that transmission was density dependent, which means that if a bunch of animals die from infection, you would expect the pathogen to sort of not be as effective at continuing to transmit to new hosts. But if those animals are dying and they're just becoming like a reservoir for the pathogen in the environment, that sort of defeats the whole density dependent transmission. Because even at low densities, if you have these carcasses that are shedding the pathogen for days after they've died, they're going to be transmitting the pathogen to susceptible hosts. And then the last project is kind of similar in a way to Adri's plant-derived fungicides, which is looking at you know how fungicides kill motile zoospores. But my project would be looking at how micropredators, so things like Daphnia or rotifers, paramecium, how those can actually consume the motile zoospores and potentially reduce the amount of those infectious stage of, of the pathogen in the environment. So that's another thing that we're working on. I haven't really begun that project yet, but that's in the future. It will involve me culturing a lot of tiny little things. <laughs> yeah. It I haven't like... really. I had Daphnia growing in my office right now. That's about the extent uh, that I've begun that project. That'll be interesting to see just how much they consume. There was a study that did look at it that was published in 2016, I believe. And they found that Daphnia do actually consume a fair amount of zoospores. However, B-cell, there are two zoospore types. So there's like this motile zoospore, which is around five microns in size. And it has a single flagellum that sort of whips it around. And then there's an insisted spore type, which is around 10 microns in size, so about double the size. And it sort of floats at the top of the water surface, and it is resistant to predation from those micropredators. So I think it's just a little larger, and the, the area it is in the water column might reduce the frequency that it's consumed. So that's one aspect of my project. I'll try and see if, if that sort of holds steady. Their project they had sort of combined communities of these micropredators, whereas I'm going to be looking at the micropredators with, you know, only one of the species present to see if any of them are more effective at eating the fungus, basically. This is a very, very interesting and in-depth project. The, the Gray Lab is doing so many different studies, and they're all really fascinating. Yeah, Dr. Gray thinks of everything. Yeah. We also have some vets in our lab who have already gotten their degrees in, in vet school, and they're looking at the pathological consequences of disease, so seeing how it actually causes death, because they're not really sure. You know, they have an idea of how BD kills animals, but there's still not a widespread consensus of how B-sal kills animals. There's kind of two hypotheses, and so there are two vets that are looking at different ways that B-sal might actually killing animals. There's one of them is looking at how B-cell affects electrolytes, which they, that's how they believe BD kills frogs is by causing electrolyte imbalances, which cause cardiac arrest. And then the other is looking at how if B-cell is actually causing septicemia in these animals, because it basically B-cell just punches holes in the amphibian skin. And so if you can imagine their, their whole body is just like torn apart by it, essentially and that mm -hmm. allows bacteria to colonize, cause secondary infections and will eventually potentially septicemia. So yeah, it's Dr. Wesley Sinyard and Anatal and Dr. Anatal.
So to wrap up, I would love to hear what individuals can do. You guys are, are doing the really important research that's not accessible for most people. So what can individuals do to, to help with this effort? Well, one thing I think is that everybody needs to be more responsible in where they get their pets from. You know, they, they have implemented a rule using the Lacey Act that stopped the import of a lot of salamanders from Asia. And interestingly, the, a lot of the pet stores and pet companies that trade amphibians were okay with that, I guess, because salamanders weren't going to hurt their bottom line that much. But people need to pay attention really to where they're getting their pets from. And then also you know, not releasing their pets into the environment if they die or if they... Or if they just don't want them anymore. Yeah, don't do that, number one. Everything that's introduced, introduce species, introduce the pathogens that they carry. So Mm -hmm. that would be my main thing is controlling that. Adri, any last words from you or advice for the public? That's very likely. I mean, how it's going to get to the U.S., is, is through the pet trade and yeah, just making sure that you're buying them, preferably already from breeders here, <laughs> just trying to limit just international trade in general, just because there's a lot more that can go on behind the scenes that you aren't aware of. And, and even just for the health of your pet and for your own peace of mind, buying from a reputable breeder or someone that you trust and know will not only benefit and lessen the the risk of B-cell coming to the U.S., but also we'll probably have a healthier, happier pet in the long run anyway. Well, thank you both for being here. We really enjoyed having you and we appreciate your insights and, and all of the knowledge that you just shared with us about B-cell. If someone wants more information on your research, visit bcellproject.tennessee.edu and that is simply bsalproject.tennessee.edu. That will give you more information on their research and it's actually a National Science Foundation study. So really important work. Davis and Adri, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks to our listeners for joining us again. Please tune in next month. We're going to speak to more of our grad students and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.